When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Business Aspirin, pain relief for business. Clint Junell has managed a restoration company in Dallas since 2008 and is one of the top drying experts in his region. Clint is also the co-founder of JobDocs, a software developed to help his team manage their overwhelming volume of projects. On the podcast, Clint brings together business managers and leaders to share with you how they have overcome their business pains and how you can too. And now, here's your host, Clint Junell. Welcome to Business Aspirin. I'm your host, Clint Janelle, and I am excited about this one today. I have uh, one of my good friends and one of the leaders in the restoration space uh, joining us today, Russ Palmer out of Arizona with Titan Restoration Arizona. Uh, Russ has been an industry leader. He's been influential in some of the associations that are vital to navigating the restoration space and benefiting restoration uh, helpful in terms of, you know, what we do as restorers in terms of drying and drying techniques. And uh, I think you've had some influence even in terms of some ICRC stuff, Russ. So super excited to have you on, man, and uh, grateful that you're here. Well, thanks. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate yeah, it. Man. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Russ. Uh, I know some of your history, but obviously the people that are going to be listening to this don't necessarily know your history. So let's talk about carpet cleaning businesses and jumping into the you know carpet world and then the restoration space and how all that kind of evolved and what made you decide to even start a carpet cleaning business. Let's get into it. Okay. So, you know, I, I love talking about myself really, you know, so this is really not uncomfortable, but um, no. So I actually, for all intents and purposes, it just, you know, restoration came by is just a fluke is what it really turned into. So my story is when I was in high school, one summer, I worked for a carpet cleaning company, did a little bit of carpet cleaning after high school, went on a mission and then came back and uh, went to college. Instead of flipping burgers, a buddy of mine said he found a carpet cleaning van I should buy and look into and and reached out to my other cousin who had a property management company. And I said, hey, if I buy a van, can I clean carpets for you? You know, while I'm going to school. And he said, all right, cool. And so... I did. So I bought a van and clean carpets and eventually I came across an empty, across an empty one that was flooded. Like, you know, one of those, Oh crap moments. And then it's like, okay, what do I do? Made a bunch of phone calls, talked to a bunch of people who I knew in my industry, you know, that I'd met over the years as carpet cleaning. Found out I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed the floods. For some reason it piqued my brain, piqued my interest. It took my brain. Um, and from there, uh, I just started doing floods only. So carpet cleaning and floods. And this was 90, 96. So okay. 27 years ago. Did that for many years. Somewhere in the early 2000s, I connected with, uh, I partnered up with a restoration company, I got contractors that they didn't do any floods. I didn't do any contracting at the time. And that was Titan Restoration. So we worked closely together. Uh, and Titan Restoration was started by an adjuster buddy of mine who uh, 
as you know, as adjusters, they think they write all these big checks and it's, you know, super, super easy. You know, you get an estimate, you get a big check and then you just put money in the bank. Right. Right. It's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a few years in, you realize it's not that easy. There's like customers associated with it and they get mad and (laughs) do stuff What's on the, on the estimate. And so, uh, for some reason or another, I bought it and took over the construction side of it. And that was in 2005. And so in 2005 is when we went full service. Titan Restoration had a bigger, uh, a better ROC license. So we stuck the name of Titan Restoration. Part of that, we were flood pro. Okay. And then since then, we've grown. Now we've got, you know, roughly 60 employees in two locations. And we're just killing it here in Phoenix and Tucson. Yeah. So... It's amazing, dude. Like to to watch the story. So I've known you probably since 2010 ish, probably range somewhere in that range since I've known you and and your involvement in the industry has been great. Like the 1996 version is, and like we didn't know how to dry structures in 1996, right? Which which is part of what led to the whole Aaron Brockovich era and black mold and the two early 2000, which is, you know, pretty big in the mold industry at that point, in the late nineties, early 2000. And so you were also kind of instrumental in seeing problems and navigating ways to help spin the industry a little bit better. Right. Would, would you yeah, say that? So yeah, luckily I got, uh, luckily I got some really, really good advice. So early, early on in my career, I discovered this, this is like pre-internet pre like, you know, Free like information age, really, because we were at Disney Yellow Pages back then, still. Yeah, sir. But somehow or another, I learned about Chuck DeWald, some redneck out in Tennessee, really. And straight. <laughs> yes. And, and so they're like, you got to go to this class. I'm like, all right, he's doing something out there. So I went, I actually went out there and took that class. And this was late 90s, which was super instrumental because in that class, there was a lot, a lot of, I didn't realize it was like his second or third class, but you know, I thought he'd been doing it for years. But the way he presented it, he did it for years. It was like boot camp. It was like pretty intense. <laughs> he had the camel on and all that stuff in those days, right? Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know those he actually, days. He actually, he actually opened the class with a video clip of Patton, the movie Patton. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, so. So what was nice, though, was in that class, there was a lot of really super influential OGs in the industry. You had, you know, Larry Carlson from Phoenix Restoration was there. You had Andy with John Don, uh, Andy Robinson with John Don was in there. You had Rachel Adams was in there. You had Kurt Golden, who was in there. Uh, Cliff Zlotnick was in there. Those are a few people that I that I remember, but I was able to form some really, really early on relationships with those guys and continue to develop through the you know, through those guys who would kind of help create this industry of restoration and drying. So, you know, drying, you know, like you said, Aaron Brockovich was there, but in the late nineties we were doing it right. You know, Chuck DeWall had it right. Yeah, by that time, but ninety four, ninety six carpet cleaning flooded buildings. Yeah, it was probably not... didn't get dried all the Ooh, I'm in Phoenix, we're good. We yeah. sell dry air. Yeah, 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 right. So you already have dry air. Uh, well, the statute yeah. of limitations has passed on those anyway, Russ. You're fine. Yeah, like yeah. That that building you drive that you came across it was flooded. Like they can't do anything to you now anyway. It's all good. I totally <laughs> undercharged them too, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you did. 
So, but, but I was lucky that I had that mentorship of the, uh, you know, Chuck DeWald and then Kurt Bolden's and going to his class and then Bill Yate and then some of these other just, just amazing people in the industry. I was able to, I was able to re- get a really good foundation and learn how to, you know, try and place, learn the psychometrics, learn the science behind it so then I can apply it to it. And so that's, that's the part that really tickled my brain. And, and it's really helped me throughout my career because then, you can just take it and expand on it. And then it's also kind of instilled into me the the desire to teach too. So, you know, and that's what we've really done is we've found out that we've had to teach throughout all these years, but it's cumulative. And so over the years at the beginning, everybody's like, what's this drying in place? Just tear it out. And now a lot of people are like, we really appreciate the way you dry it and how you do it. And why do other people not do it the same way you do it? So. Kind and it's strange. Lot. It's strange from the perspective of drying that way that the whole cut and gut is still a thing that's still acceptable at some level. It's odd to me that we still allow that to take place because we can do so much to dry effectively these days. It's interesting, you know. I just so, walked a job yesterday. Guys, doing you know, clean pipe, clean pipe broke, and they're in there cutting and gutting floor to ceiling. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because from my perspective, and I look at that, you and I both know we make a whole lot more profit margin on drying that structure than we do gutting that structure and reconstructing that structure. And so that's one of the things I think is significant, even in just this conversation with you, is for restorers that are in this space to pay attention to, like, let's do this stuff right. And we make more money. Ultimately, we make more profit margin by doing it correctly instead of gutting somebody's building. Yeah, no, totally. These. You have to be careful because we do make a higher profit margin, but it's not the amazing profit margin that the insurance adjusters think we are making. They think sure. we're making like 70% oh, yeah. on our money. No, yeah. really, really, no, really. <laughs> Transparent, all transparency outside, everything. Yeah. We're probably about a 15% net is all we really yeah. are. We're not making, you know, we're not driving Lambos and Ferraris. Yeah, yeah I've never I've never had a you know supercar as a result of my experience in the restoration space. But it's better than what ultimately we make if I'm gutting this property out and then reconstructing this property and dragging somebody out for the next four months to put a property back together. Uh, yeah, it's just a, no, it's a, better, a better experience all around, better environment. Um, and and it's, e- like, it's easier on me to logistically coordinate a drawing than it is for me to demo an entire property. So I think that, I think that's great, man. Like, so let's talk a little bit about as you got into the restoration side, as you decided to make the pull the trigger on purchasing Titan out and, and owning that and taking all that on, let's talk about what led to that decision and what what was right about that decision and what you wish you had known going into it that maybe would have changed some things and uh, how you how you moved forward. What was right about it? Well, I was super naive and some sucker took my money. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> They're always out there. Yeah, that, there's a sucker born every day. I think, you know, Groundhog Day for me. No, it's it's been a good journey. Construction is not my passion. And it's not something that I, you know, when people do advise me that they have a successful mitigation business, um, just getting a higher revenue not necessarily more sexy than, you know, there's a year we did, you know, I'm going to put the skirt up a little bit, let you peek underneath, but there's a year we did $8 million in top line revenue for reconstruction. I made $15,000 that year. 
We had a couple jobs go sideways. You know, talk about pucker factor. Hey, guys, I'm ready to shut this down. You guys better figure out how to turn this around or we're all going to be just, you know, mitigation water technicians. But but if you don't have a passion for it, you don't have a good team for it, then you can you can get burned really, really bad. And it can hurt and sting. And, you know, like you said, you just start passing a whole lot of money around and your employees are getting paid, your subs are getting paid, and at the end of the day, you're, you have a lot of risk on there for not a whole lot of money. So you have to be super careful that way. If you have the right team and they have a passion for it or you have a passion for it yourself, then it makes it a little bit easier, makes it a little bit easier to do that. So, you know, it's... I always caution people, you know, be stay in your lane, be good at your, you know, keep it simple and, and do what you're good at. So, Well, that's what we try to say, too. Like, the reality is, is I'm not ecstatic about the reconstruction side of our business either. Like, I would much rather do the mitigation side. I would much rather focus on contents and mitigation. You don't do contents. But no. those parts are easier to navigate than the reconstruction side. And, and inevitably, the reconstruction side is where things take longer and people expect somebody to be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week to put their property back together until it's done. And it just doesn't simply work that way. And so it creates that frustration and sometimes with a customer and you have to manage and mitigate that situation. And I would much rather do the drying side and the customer service where you come in with your cape on and our superhero for, you know, three or four days and you get a bounce out of there and everybody's happy about what's taken place and you've done your job and done it well and everybody sings your praises. It's just easier to navigate. I, like I tell people all the time and I, anybody that's listening to the podcast, I would tell them if you can be successful just doing mitigation, stay there because the rest of it is just difficult. We wouldn't do it. We didn't have to, but I feel bad about Mrs. Smith. that's 80 years old and needs something to put back together. And I'm like, oh, okay, we got to do this project. And so we have a reconstruction division as a result of that, which now you got to keep the reconstruction division moving and busy. <laughs> So it's just the snowball effect, but it meant if you could be successful and find your wheelhouse in mitigation and stay in your lane, like it doesn't have to be mitigation. If you're not a fire water restoration company, find whatever it is that you do, do that piece well that you can make your margins to be successful as a company and stick there. Because the reality is like I've watched company after company come in and, you know, they're a fire water mitigation company and then they're reconstruction. And then they're like, Oh, we can do remodels too. And then, Oh, we can paint stripes on parking lots and Oh, we might as well do asphalt while we're doing parking. And then they're doing all these things. And when their wheelhouse type of project, the water damage comes in, which they shine at the most comes in, they're busy doing all these other things and they don't, they're not successful at that project now either because they're, scattered everywhere <laughs> right and i mean you know how that works right like you've seen guys do that too and it's mind-boggling to me that i mean there are there are companies that you and i both know that are running 10 million in revenue and they're not making a dime doing it and they're just working their tail off to not have any type of success whatsoever and that's just crazy to me so i mean i definitely can echo your statement there, right? Like find your wheelhouse, stay in your lane, be successful at it. What's, um, because you're like me, like you're kind of a science nerd on the whole drying side, right? Like you like the science. You I've, like been, the I've been told that. I've been told that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like there's some things and you're, you're way into the KPIs on numbers and driving your business and the science of numbers of drying and how do we make this better? How do we make this more efficient? And Talk to me a little bit about the mentality that goes into operating a business from the numbers side. It's a fine line that you walk as a business owner. You you need to know. So 
everybody like a lot of people talk about numbers and money. Really, what what is money? What are the numbers? That's just a scoreboard. Like, if you're into sports, you know, I know you're into hockey, right? You, your family's into hockey. They do a lot of that. Right. I mean, going to practice is fun and watching it, but it's not that great because there's no score. But the games are where, you know, they keep the score. That's you got you keep the score and then it's exciting and, you know, hey, great, we did great. All sports are that way. Nobody likes to watch practice. Practice is all right, but you really like where the competition is, is where the you got to compete and you got to keep score. And so, you know, in your business, your numbers are your scoreboard. So put your scoreboard up, learn, learn them, look at them, track your stats, track your, track your numbers, see what they look like. And, you know, and that changes like your KPIs. There's always a few that are like core that you're looking at. You know, but there's other stuff that you're always looking at too. You can tweak, and it's uh, you're just kind of looking at them and, hey, how can we improve? You know, when you're young and nimble and stuff, you can see a lot of improvement on some things, and you can go really right, really fast, or you can go really wrong, really quick too. Um, but as you get grow and more mature and kind of develop your processes, you're just looking for little minor tweaks. You know, to get how do I get a one percent improvement today, or one percent improvement this month or this year? You know, depending on the size of your business, a 1% improvement and, you know, in a couple directions can drastically change your bottom line by a lot of points. Sure, sure. And I think that's important. So, like, it reminded me of, I heard a story about uh, one of the trucking companies that's a pretty big national trucking company. And his goal, I think they had like 30,000 trucks on the road, some big number of trucks. And his goal was to improve his daily efficiency by $1 per truck. $30,000 $30,000 a day in, in efficiency, right? And if I got two, that's amazing. But that's a significant dollar amount if they can figure out how to do that and streamline their operations to have 30,000 trucks being a dollar more efficient a day. Unbelievable. So from well, somebody... That's, uh, that's compound interest right there. That's, you yeah. know, that's you know, the banker's S- best buddy right there. Significant. So <laughs> no, if, you just... were, if you were talking to somebody or talking to 20-year-ago Russ... 30 year ago, Russ, I guess at this point, right? What would be the key numbers? What are the core numbers you want someone to track? You're going to track the basics, right? You're going to track your top line revenue. You want to know what you're billing out, what you're doing. You want to track your costs, how much it's costing, and not just like what's in my checking account. You know, and then from there, you kind of, you know, the other thing you're going to want to track is how long it's taking you to collect your money, you know? There's, that's a real big issue, and how good is your process there? Like a lot of, a lot of restoration guys I talk to are 90 to 120 days on their, you know, on their on their receivables and mitigation. I think we're at 28 days or less, and wow. then or somewhere in there. And overall combined, we're about we've been slipping. We're like 48 days, I think 45, 47 days for receivables. That's pretty. That's still amazing, though. Honestly, if you think about the space. Like you're, you're probably top in that space right now, right? Now you do a lot more commercial than a lot of the other restoration guys are going to do. Uh, and some of that pays a little quicker as well. Right. But um, yeah, that, kind of, something, uh, something yeah, <laughs> that may be a day Russ, for us to have a whole other, you know, podcast where you train people how to go get their money faster. And, and it's not me. That, it's my, we got a great collection team. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> They're the See, nicest, nicest bulldogs you got. That, that's, so. that's, that's training in itself. Hey, this is what I did. This is how I put these guys in place. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, we've been actually, you know, like I said, we've been slipping. We've had it down as low as 36 days at once. 35 days, I think, is when we're the best. So. But see, like most of the guys that are listening to this, uh, most of the guys in the industry aren't going to know those numbers. They're not going to know how long it takes them to collect money. They're going to have a general idea that it takes a long time. Uh, and they're going to fight for all that stuff, but they're necessarily tracking those KPIs specifically. So it's good for someone that's trying to hit that next level. You know, they've most of the guys that are, are hearing the podcast have uh, done a decent level in revenue. And most of them are around a million dollars in revenue. And they're trying to just jump into that three million or five million range and kind of get that done. So to hear you talk about because because the cycle time of money improves that as well, right? The faster you get that done, the more you can do with that money to move on to the next project and make things happen. And the more time you spend every day trying to collect money on a project, the more it costs you for that project. Yeah. So speeding so, that up is valuable. So hearing that is great. Yeah. So I, I guess one of the things when I was young, I didn't understand the time value of money. You know, so for example, when, when you say, okay, it's taken me, Let's say it takes a company 90 days to collect money. What does that mean? That means like from the time you invoice to the time you collect any money, it's 90 days. And and when you're going against a company like mine where we're at 45 days, like I'm able to collect my money twice as fast. So this is what it really boils down to is, you know, it's like, hey, guys, you know, it would, when you have when you have your lower AR days, you're able to put that money in your pocket quicker. Most of the time, that's just a little bit of discipline of being able to say, "Hey, I need to deposit up front. I need to collect some money up front. I need to collect this." You know, you also need to be able to have the discipline of knowing how to navigate the mortgage process if you're doing, especially on the reconstruction side. Anything over five thousand dollars has a mortgage company on it, and and those guys are even tougher than the insurance companies get money out of. But if you understand how to process yeah. it or run the process, you can do it. Like, I don't, I don't know if we're going to have a recession or not, but 2008 was pretty brutal for restoration guys. Yeah. There was a lot of people that were in arrears on their mortgages. And when all of a sudden the mortgage company got an 80 or a hundred thousand dollar check from an insurance company, they're like, Hey, we can get it paid back on our loan, which you know, we ended up having to teach them was illegal, but that was not their money. And so it was, it was a process, you know, especially then when everybody was so desperate for money and they, but it was, it was something that we took the time to learn. You may reach out to the attorneys and do that and learn that and, and figured out the process. And really it's, and that's one of the reasons it's so good is because we have a streamlined process for dealing with mortgage companies. Right. And you've got all this broken down into SOPs and it's taken you years <clears throat> to figure all that out. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's important for people to hear is like, when we start off, we don't know what we don't know. And we just kind of go operate. And then as you operate longer, you learn you have to have some things in place to make this more efficient and for somebody else to be able to do the job that you were doing before, because you can't do everything. And then to navigate how do I make that efficient and scalable? Because if I grow, then somebody else is going to have to take that role too. Um, and so I think I think it's important that everyone knows that they've got to figure out a way to create a process that that someone else can follow and take yourself off of it. And when you start talking about, like you're aware that in, in the restoration space right now, private equity is a big play. Like there's a whole lot of people trying to uh, buy and acquire and do things in spaces. And the reality is if, 
you had to stay involved in Titan Restoration for it to operate in any capacity, you're less valuable than if you've got the parts and pieces in place to allow Titan to continue to operate without you. Uh, and that changes the game. And so those of you that are in the process of building a, a business and growing your your legacy for for whatever, you've got to be able to take that and and make it so that you're not required to be there in order for you to have a valuable exit strategy. Um, and or really, even if you're going to pass it down to your kids and grandkids, you still want to have processes in place to to make it work, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. You need to you need to have something that you can kind of do it repeatedly, um, and then be able to measure against that. So, going back to the question of like, you know, what 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 else would I tell myself twenty years ago? couple of things that I, I probably do, and I know a lot of us do, is we, we hold on to too many of our – we don't know how to delegate, you know, and, and we think it's going to cost us a lot of money or more money to, you know – like it took me forever to hire my first bookkeeper, and at that point, I was like, I can't afford that person. And then once I had a, the right one in there, I was like, what was I thinking, you know? So learning to delegate. The other thing is – Continually be learning, you know, Vern Harnish says leaders are readers. And so if you want to be a leader, the thing we have to learn in our companies is our companies are only going to grow as fast as we grow. So one of the things that we have to realize is that as an owner of a million dollar company, the company is not going to grow to $5 million unless I learn how to be a $5 million a year owner. And I change my mentality. I change little bit of my habits. I change the way I do business that change, you know, how I think the structure and the same thing as you're, as you're growing all the different levels, you have to be growing faster than your company in order to continue to lead. Cause otherwise your company is going to outgrow you or it's going to catch up to you and it's going to stall. And then you're going to get, you know, if you're, if you're stuck at a spot or stuck at a level, it's probably because you personally are stuck at a level and it's not, you're not, you're not growing yourself as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's very valuable information in terms of growing. And in in your case, because I know you, you use scaling up to help kind of put some of those things in place to help you be prepared for the growth, right? What's your suggestion around finding a, a, a system to move you forward? Like, what would you say to someone? Okay. So I would say you, you need to have some type of system. That's the short answer. You don't ever want to be the smartest guy in the room. You know, if if you can hire people that are way smarter than you, it's, you know, this, give them the opportunities, let them do what they do and let them shine. What I do, like I see a lot of companies that are like, Hey, what's, you know, what's, what works for you or what's good or what should I do? And as I talk to them, the number one thing I, I suggest to most companies is to get a business operating system. Whether it's scaling up, which when when we looked at it, there was only really a couple. You know, you have like good to great, you have great game again business, you have uh, EOS, and you had scaling up. And so, I wanted somebody to teach me how to run just a better business. Didn't matter what it was, we just or a business that happens to be in restoration. And so, I just need somebody to help me run that. In hindsight, I would probably go with EOS. It's just a little more simple. A little easier to implement. Uh, scaling up's pretty, pretty heavy. Pretty, it's a pretty big lift. Uh, we've done it very well. My team has adopted it and done well, and and and, and gone from there. But 
I know a lot of restoration companies are using the EOS system. Uh, there's a book called by Gino Wickman called what is it? Uh, traction. 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 Book. Yeah. Uh, but there's five books in there. So there's traction, which is for the owners. He has a um, some other part books for like how to for you, the employees, so yeah, they can the get staff to understand. Like I think one of them is called "What the Heck Is EOS." Then yeah. Rocket Fuel is one that he uses to kind of help propel you a little bit better um, in that with your integrator, as they, what they call it. But so when you, if you were to look at like when is the right time to implement a business operating system, and how do you know when is the right? Well, let me ask you this: When's the right time to plant a tree? I'm with you, you know, like as early as possible, right? Like if I want yeah, this thing to happen, but, but too many people, especially on the entrepreneurial side, right. Is we have a, usually we have a passion about something and we're like, this is cool. I want to do this. And uh, being able to help customers in the restoration space and save them in the time of need. And then as you grow, you start realizing, Oh crap, I've got to have like, I can't do all this. I need to add some people. I need to add a bookkeeper. Oh, why did I wait so long to do this? Now I have some help doing that. And so here's it, here's the thing that that the the that goes to your question is the problem with our industry is that not everybody in our industry is graduating from Wharton Business School, you know, coming out with an MBA and knows how to run a business. Like all the owners that you've met, they graduated from high school, did a little bit of college. They worked for somebody for a while. What really happened most likely was they did a really good job in their business, you know, in their position. They were working for some guy who didn't know how to manage his checkbook, wasn't paying his bonuses, got pissed off, says, Hey, I'm gonna go off and start on my own because you're not paying me my bonuses or my commissions and not, you know, not taking care of me. And you're you're going out and starting a business. Like the, the barrier to entry isn't very, very high to get into it, but when you're in there, the problem is you just, you've never run a business before. Like there's some basics in just running a business. doesn't matter if it's restoration or, or selling widgets or whatever it could be. There's, there's basics that are in there that as you just learn these basics, it just makes it so much easier to say, okay, as I'm looking at this, here's my business. Here's how I'm supposed to have, here's some meeting rhythms that I'm supposed to do so that I can, you know, keep everybody informed and keep everybody on the same page. Here's how, here's how we can start plugging people in. Here's how we can look at it, you know, to, to start. Here's how I can do my strategic planning. Here's how we can do, you know, quarterly thinking, annual planning, you know, three-year, five-year, 25-year planning. And what, what does this all look like? And you kind of get a rhythm and you say, okay, you know, at, at its basic, you say, okay, what does my company look like in three to five years? And then you reverse engineer it. And and when you have gone through the process, you're like, it's pretty fairly simple. It's pretty, it's not any like, it's not any like rocket science, hey, peek behind the curtain. And, you know, there's some types of big secrets. It's really just, you look at it, it's like, oh, it's kind of like a common sense thing, but it's just one of those things that you were never taught it. You've never been a part of it. You've never been a process to it. So it's really hard to, you know, basically reinvent the wheel to do that. And it's just, Somebody's already spent a lot of time consulting. They've already spent a lot of time with other businesses, just like you guys struggling with all the same issues. And they say, hey, here's a playbook. Follow it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm it's, on the lazy side. I'll follow it. <laughs> yeah. And it's easier that way, right? The problem is just knowing that you need to implement it and knowing that there are things out there that will make the whole process more streamlined and more efficient for you. Uh, but it's tough, right? On the entrepreneurial side, when you're in the minutia of 
working on jobs and writing estimates and trying to invoice customers and all the things, it's hard to make that a priority. And so I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I would suggest that that's a, a they, people make it a big priority and focus on getting operating system in place early. And I think that's spectacular. What's... Well, there's a book. There's a book that helps on that. That's really, really good by a guy by the name of Dr. Benjamin Hardy called Who Not How. Okay. So whenever you get a problem or you have an issue, a lot of people say, how am I going to accomplish this? He says, you should reframe that and you're, you should, you should change your framework and say how, or like who should do this, not how should I do this? Cause a lot of times it's easier to find a, a who and not figure out how to do it. That's probably valuable information. I'm gonna look that up. I'm gonna find that book. Um, so in, in your career, what are some of the business pains you've experienced and how have you resolved those pains? A couple of the biggest ones, like whatever you would like, don't make $8 million in revenue and have $15,000 in profit. That's one. But like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's one. <laughs> you know, the, the problem. So the, the problem, like, for example, with that, that year, what we realized was we just, we just got lazy and kind of started throwing money at stuff. So, you know, where there's profits, there's usually uh, like Howard Shore is one of our business consultants. He has a book called Leaky Buckets, you know, and every time you're, you know, you're making money, there's going to be some leaky buckets. There's going to be profits slipping away somewhere. And, and it's just trying to figure out like which, you know, slow down, look at your numbers, understand your numbers, and just try and figure out where those leaky buckets are and just kind of plug them or slow them down or, or do that because there's going to be some, you know, it's going to be rough, but when you look at it, it's, it's just, you know, one way to do that. The other thing to do, um, the other thing I've, I've learned over the years more than anything is hire, hire for culture, hire for hire, slow down in your hiring process and hire good people and just get out of the way and let them do their job. You know, as owners, we like to go in and we like to, you know, micromanage and stuff. But if you hired right and you and you and you've trained them well, you say, "Hey, here's your SOP. Here's your hired right, and I'm going to track you. Here's what you're going to be measured against. Go." You know, people want to perform. They want to do good in their job, and and if they're happy and they and they like the the work environment that they're in, and they like the the people they're working with. They're going to do a lot for you. They'll run through brick walls for you and they'll just do some amazing stuff for you. And they'll, you know, they'll perform and happy employees are going to perform better than pissed off employees. So absolutely track your net, check your like insurance companies have the net promoter score, right? There's a way to track your employee net promoter score. So start tracking that. <clears throat> you know, a lot of companies are, I think they're really, really good in the 30s and 40, you know, like a 40, a net promoter score of 40 to 50 is pretty good. Ours is like 68 or 70. So that's significant, of, man. And a, a, yeah. a lot of a lot of our listeners won't even know what a net promoter score is. But essentially, guys, it boils down to would your employee, what he's talking about an employee net promoter score is, would they recommend you as a company to use? Would they recommend you as a place to be employed? Like, do they like you? Are they happy with where they're at? That's what he's talking about. Uh, and in your case, like, I know some of your guys, right? I know part of your team and like, they've been there a long time. Um, and they're, they're fans of both Russ and of Titan, right? They're there, they're in, they've bought in and uh, you've done a great job on that for that, from that perspective, man. And for that, like, 
kudos for sure. It's, that's that probably lot. one of the harder things in business to do that is like work your ass off and, and still have fun. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. But, and you've done, like, yeah. you have a good culture, like, and you've created an environment that allows you to have, like, I've ridden a bouncy unicorn. I don't even know what you call that thing that I've ridden in your office. The unicorn. Unicorns? It's like a little pump horse bicycle thing. Uh, and there's, well, there's scooters. It's in the Mary the Poppins. Like, yeah, Mary Poppins is a, <laughs> the unicorns. It's like the Mary Poppins merry go round. Like, you just yeah, bounce around, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, so, you know. it, it, and they get to have a good time and they're excited about what they're doing. And I think that's significant. Like if, if any of you are ever in Mesa, Arizona, like Russ's team is somebody you need to meet, uh, especially if you're in the restoration space, you need to just drop in and say hi to those guys. I don't think there'd be a ton of them flooding your office, Russ. So I don't think I'm taking a ton of your time by telling people to come see you, but um, no, Russ we're, is, we're, Russ we're is open. Come by and say hi significant leader in this space and and i consider a, a valuable asset to me and good friend and i'm i'm grateful for it um it like we've had a good conversation i want to be mindful of your time because uh, i told you to be about 30 minutes and i could chat with you for hours on end about different things man so what's one thing that i didn't ask that you would want to share with that group trying to jump in kickstart maybe they have a job and they're trying to start a business or maybe they're trying to get to that next level what's the what's the rust level of advice that you would offer to somebody don't be afraid to raise your hand and ask questions so you know get, get involved the going to you know for example the ria restoration industry association it's been around for a long time start going to classes start interacting with the instructors you know you go to the RAA, there's a bunch of super smart dudes there that you can kind of learn from, pick your brains from, form some relationships. You know, don't uh, a lot of guys go there just so they can go to the bar and hang out and, you know, do whatever. But, you know, go to the bar and buy a drink for a guy that looks got some gray hair and looks like he's pretty smart. You know, when you're there, not, you'll see some guys walking around in jackets. Yeah. Not me, though. I don't have anything to offer. That's one free drink. I just have, I just have gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> look look for the guys walking around in the jackets and the you know that 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 just look like they're out of place because they're not a contractor, but they just look like they're super smart and go buy a drink and start a conversation with them and you'll you'll be interested in you know you'll find some pretty interesting people there there's some you know there's a lot of great resources on the r a website it's super inexpensive to join that right now too um they've changed the way that they've set it up so that uh, more than likely what we're hoping, you know, I just so full disclosure, it's not a commercial, but I sit on the board for the RIA have for a few years now, but it's, it's changed a lot. They want to be a resource. They want to be valuable. They want to be, you know, provide value for the membership and not just be a good old boys drinking network. Right. So, but there's well, get involved and talk to people. And, you know, and need a lot of stuff. So many younger entrepreneurs, <laughs> there's the hesitancy to try to be transparent, right? Or to try to be involved and think everybody's just competition. So they'll go to a course and maybe learn from an instructor, but they don't really want to build the relationship with anybody in their market. And I would say the best thing you could do is build a relationship with the people that are in your market because those people have some knowledge, can offer some assistance, maybe even be able to get you in a tight spot, right? You know, I have a great relationship with, Dalworth restoration that has done some amazing things for me in the past. And I know, you know, those guys really well too. And 
So jump in, man, and and buy in on on what opportunities are in front of you to be able to assist you. And, and I love that. I love that sentiment. I love that advice. Uh, get involved in the associations that are a part of your industry. If it's restoration, RA is a great one uh, to be involved in. But the other thing, also, there's a lot of people. That, there's there's two mentalities I run into a lot of people. There's an abundance mentality and a scarcity mentality, right? Okay. Uh, Peter Diamandis, do you know, is, uh, does the X prize is kind of the one that has this abundance 360, but his basic, basic premise is, and this is the way I kind of operate is there's enough pie for everybody, you know, and the, it's not that I have to go get my piece of the pie. Like I, I, I don't mind getting a piece of pie and getting that, but there's a lot of pie. There's enough to go around. There's a lot to go around and, and, you know, align yourself with that and have that abundance mentality that, hey, just because you didn't get this one job doesn't mean there's not 14 other jobs behind it. You know, there's there's other there's plenty of work to go around. There's plenty of stuff there. And and part of that's having those alliances, like you said, you know, Galworth's a, a big company in your market. I'm the same here. Like some of my biggest jobs have come from smaller companies who said, hey, Russ, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Can you come help me out here? all right, let's go work this thing together. They learn, they, you know, I let them work side by side with me. It's not like I come in and kick them off or anything, but work side by side. We train them, but, you know, I, you're doing a couple different things. You're elevating the whole industry. You're training a whole other set of group that's going to do it right because there's a lot of people that don't. And, you know, rising tide will raise all ships. So the best right. we can do is kind of work together and create that rising tide for everybody. And, you know, and the, you know, the more we work together as an industry – the, the the more we'll be able to like see changes and things happen in our industry because we are a super fragmented industry because a lot of people are just like this scarce mentality. It's like, hey, I've only got this much and I, I've got to hold on to what I've got. But, you know, share it, share it. There's lots, share it with your employees, Absolutely. share it with your, share it with your customers, share it with your competitors, share it with, you know, be open and help everybody out. And it's just like, it's cool to where like, the more people that are lifting, the more people that are rowing in the same direction, the faster you can get somewhere. So absolutely. Absolutely. I love it, man. I love it. Well, brother, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you taking the time to be on here. It's good to see you. Um, I will see you soon. I'm sure somewhere uh, we'll connect on something. And if you need anything from me, man, you know where to find me. Uh, yeah. Everybody, thank you so much for being on with us today at Business Aspirin. Russ, I appreciate your time and uh, we'll catch up soon. Cool. Thank you. Take care. This has been a Business Aspirin, pain relief for business podcast. If you're a business owner trying to overcome your business pains, follow us on Apple Podcasts or visit our website for more information, job-docs.com.